When you hear the word joy, what comes to your mind? You know, for most people, they think about this feeling of happiness that comes from smiling a lot or laughing a lot. Many of us think that joy comes when everything is going well, when everything is going your way and things are just, they're always going right. You have plenty of money, you got great health, you're successful in all avenues of life. But what happens when things aren't going so good? Your family's kind of stressed financially, or you're struggling at work or school, or maybe your, your marriage is strained. You or someone close to you is facing a health issue. Can you really have joy when all of that is going on? Well, in the Bible, it talks about joy in this context. It talks about joy as being this deep inner gladness that's not dependent upon your circumstances. That means that whether you're rich or poor, whether you're sick or healthy, whether you're successful or you're struggling, you can still have this gladness deep down, this satisfaction deep down inside your soul. Now, you may not feel like smiling on the outside, but you still have this sense of satisfaction on the inside. So do you know joy like this? Have you noticed the kids are leaving? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody said, there's a lot of moving parts in this service. You have no idea, right? <laughs> this kind of joy that we're talking about this morning is supernatural. It's part of the character of God. And it comes to us only through a relationship with him. It comes through spending time with Jesus and knowing him. And today we're going to see how joy was an essential part of the Christmas story. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, we're going to be in Luke, the second chapter. We're going to use verse 8 and following. So if you want to track with me, let's start with verse 8. Kind of kicks off the whole, this whole part of the narrative. It says, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. This gives us some insight into this group that we're being introduced to in the story of the birth of Jesus, a group of shepherds. They lived out in their fields and they watched over their flocks at night, which was pretty much standard operating procedure for shepherds. But often when the first century portrays shepherds, they're polite they're respectful, just like our shepherds were this morning. They're respectful. But that imagery shouldn't be romanticized because shepherds in the first century were anything but that. In fact, they were, they were despised bunch by most people in the culture. Shepherds were considered untrustworthy. And regarding uh, the Jewish law, their work made them ceremonially unclean. Thus, the more surprising implication is that the gospel first came to this group of outcasts in Jesus' day. Verse number nine, Luke says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. Now that Greek word that Luke uses there that we translate terrified comes from the Greek word phobon, which means terrified. You know, like, I put my Carhartt hat on this week, and I went to get my granddaughter out of her car seat. 
and I had sunglasses on. She just didn't know that was grandpa. And she went, ah! And I said, baby, it's okay, it's grandpa. Ah! And I said, okay, okay. I took the, the, you know, I'm in the witness protection program, apparently. And so I took all that off, and it took me a little while before she would warm up to grandpa again. These guys were terrified. And if we understand the context, it makes sense, right? Because their appearing to them is an angel of God. And that in itself would have been terrifying enough. But what the text tells us is these guys were also terrified because they saw the visible manifestation of the glory of the Lord. Think about it. These guys were probably drowsy. Some of them were asleep. And then immediately they're startled into this total consciousness surrounded by the manifestation of the glory of God. They're terrified. Well, verse 10 says, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. This is an important verse for us today. The angel quickly reassured them there's no need to be afraid. He told them the reason for his visit was to bring good news. And the announcement would be a source of great joy to them. This is a key point of emphasis When you think about it, every time God gives good news, it's always a source of great joy. And God is the only source of this kind of joy. This joy that is deep inner gladness that isn't dependent on your circumstances. Also, the angel makes it clear that this great joy is not just for the shepherds. It's for all people. Often we think that the best experiences in life are often only for those who can afford them. That isn't the case here. Keep in mind that the first group that the angel shares with is a bunch of shepherds, a motley crew of social outcasts. And the implication is that if this joy was intended for these guys, then certainly it was meant for anybody and everybody. If, if it was relevant and important for them, God intended it for them, then it would be for everyone. And now here's the good news that the angel shares. It's in verse 12, or it's in verse 11, chapter 2. He says, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. David referred, uh, Luke refers to the city of David, that is the city of Bethlehem, which is the epicenter of this good news. And the angel announces the birth of Jesus. We know it's Jesus because Gabriel told Mary earlier in the narrative that you're gonna name him Jesus. And the angel refers to this baby born in Bethlehem in this verse by three different titles, and they're all significant. The first is he calls him Savior. Now, a savior refers to the one who delivers people from their enemies. And Jesus came to set humanity free from the enemy of sin. And then he calls him Messiah, which was a really important word among the Jewish culture. The Greeks translated that word Christ. We often hear Jesus referred to as Jesus Christ. Or the Jews would say Jesus, Messiah. Messiah was the hope that the Jews had been waiting for. And now, that way was finally over. 
The time had come. He said, today, today in the town of Bethlehem, the town of David, the time has come for the fulfillment of all the prophecies about the Messiah, his arrival. And then he says the term, the title, Lord. He calls him Lord, which is a reference to the authority of Jesus. These terms, they're used to explain the significance of this baby. If you weren't aware of who who was born in the town of Bethlehem, well, now you are. It was a reference to the fact that he was much more than just a baby. As amazing as a birth of a baby is, and you know that, you've probably seen that, maybe you've even experienced that. You know how powerful that is, but this baby is far more than just the significance of new life. He's the Savior, Messiah, and Lord of all mankind. Isaiah said this in chapter 9, verse 6. He said, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then the angel gives the shepherds instructions on how to find the baby. This is what he says in verse 12. He said, This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now think about this for a second. The angel gives them a sign so they can find this baby. And clearly the angel is signaling to them the expectation, I want you to go find this baby. Now maybe they wouldn't have needed any motivation, but it's clear that's the intent here. Here's the sign. Here's how you're going to find him. Now you should go. These distinct details were just enough that they would be able to find this newborn baby. And then, as if it wasn't enough to have a visit from an angel, this spectacular moment then happens. Verses 13 and 14. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. All of a sudden, the angel was joined by this large group of angels and they're celebrating, which is a reminder to us that the arrival of Jesus was worthy of the hosts of heaven coming to our presence, coming into the presence of of humanity, a group of shepherds, albeit, but certainly announcing to them the birth of God's Son. And if it was worthy of heaven to praise the birth of Jesus, then certainly it's worthy of our praise. And I'm grateful for these kids that, that led us this morning to say, Jesus, you are worth it. Joy to the world, go tell it on the mountain. He's worth it. You see, the Messiah had come, and these, these shepherds were witnesses of the light show in the skies and the amazing sounds of praise, glory to God in the highest heaven, expressing the mighty power of heaven's celebration. And then, just like that, it was over. Verses 15 and 16 says, when the angels had left them, 
and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. The text tells us that they immediately decided, let's go to Bethlehem to find the Messiah who's been born. It says they hurried off to go find the baby which tells us the shepherds had this heightened sense of excitement and determination to go and see this newborn baby who was the Messiah, the focus of this good news. And then we read this in verses 17 and 18. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The shepherds saw the Messiah, period. That's all we know about their encounter with him. There's nothing else. I wonder if Jesus was asleep when they arrived. I wonder if they were respectful and quiet. That would have been out of their character, not quite their nature. I wonder if, if some of them were allowed to hold the baby. You know, as shepherds, they often held baby lambs, I wonder if they held the baby lamb of God. I wonder. I wonder if when they saw him, they were filled with great joy. How could they not have been after everything they'd experienced pointing to that manger and the occupants of it? How could they not have experienced great joy? We don't know the specifics of their visit that night, but we do know that the events of that evening would have a profound impact on these shepherds because when they left, Luke says they spread the word about their experiences that night and that they were incredibly convincing. Luke tells us that all who heard their story were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. You see, meeting the Messiah Having an encounter with Jesus has that effect on a person. I know that those shepherds didn't live perfect lives after that encounter with Jesus. But I assume they never forgot that night. And I assume that they cherished the good news and that they were blessed by the great joy that it brought them. But I wonder about us today. Do you have great joy in your life, regardless of circumstances, do you have a deep inner gladness? The good news about the arrival of the Messiah was what brought great joy. And I wonder, do you know how to experience such joy? We know that sometimes even the most godly of people experience Moments where there seems to be no joy in their lives. A great example of this is the prophet Elijah, a phenomenal man of God, faithful and, and diligent against extreme odds. He had just come off of defeating 450 prophets of Baal. He had called down fire from heaven. But then all of a sudden, the king's wife, King Ahab's wife Jezebel, starts making threats against Elijah, that she's going to see that he is killed. And all of a sudden, 
we find Elijah praying this in 1 Kings 19. He says, I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. Some theologians think he was so depressed from fear and despair that he was on the cusp of being suicidal. If people like Elijah will struggle at times, how can people like you and me experience consistent joy in the Christian life? Well, first we need to realize that joy is a gift from God. It's a gift that he gives. Joy is a gift from God, and our response is is to that gift of God. It produces joy. Joy comes when we're aware of God's grace and we appreciate his favor. With this in mind, let me share quickly with you three ways that I think we can put ourselves in a place to experience this kind of joy. The first is this. Stay focused on God. Rather than focusing on our struggles or the things that bring us discontentment, we should focus on Jesus. You can imagine all the things that will try to pull you away from that focus. And the truth is you can't ignore or stuff down all the negative junk in your life. But instead, why not pour that out to him? God will listen. Just pour out your heart to the Lord. Tell him honestly all the things that trouble you. And then submit those things to him. And remember who you're talking to. He can handle that. And in that process, you will find great joy. The book of Philippians says a lot about joy, even though the Apostle Paul is writing it from a prison cell. There's a bit of irony there. His joy wasn't wasn't dependent upon his circumstances. Well, look what he writes in chapter 4, verse 4. Probably the crux of this letter is here in Starting with verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul gives us some directives or some guidelines here to help us focus on God. Very quickly, he says, intentionally praise God. If I'm summarizing, I'd say intentionally praise God. And then secondly, he says, Connect with God through prayer. It's a great privilege to pray. Would you agree? I mean, we have access to the creator of the universe who loves us unconditionally. We should take full advantage of that. And then the third thing that he says is keep your focus on godly things. Rather than focusing on difficult circumstances or things that bring discontentment. So stay focused on God to experience joy. The second second thing The second key to experiencing joy is living in obedience to God. Jesus gave instructions to his disciples while he was teaching in Matthew, or in uh, John, excuse me, the 15th chapter. And he's talking in that chapter about abiding in him. Listen to what he writes. He says, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. 
abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. God's joy is in our obedience to him. It will produce that. When we follow his directive, when we follow his word, when we abide in him, joy is produced. Deep joy. Not, cons- not dependent on our circumstances. It comes from obedience to God. And finally, the third way to experience joy in the Christian life is living in biblical community. You know, God gave Elisha rest And then he sent a man named Elisha to comfort him, to help him. And you know, you and I both need people like that in our lives as well. We need friends who can share our hurts and our struggles with us. Somebody who we just lean on sometimes. They support us, encourage us. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says two are better than one. Pretty simple math. We're better together. We need one another. And when we're joined together in biblical community, we're part of a family of believers. However big or small that community might be, it's a place where you're known and you know others. And it matters when you're not there. And it matters when you are there. When we are a part of a biblical community like that, we find inspiration to hold on to our faith when we feel like quitting. And we continue to trust in the Lord because of their encouragement. We find great encouragement in one another. Life can be lonely and discouraging. And I don't need to tell you that. You know that. But when we're connected to other Christians, they remind us of God's truth. They help carry our burdens. And they strengthen us to keep going. And we all need that at some point in life. So, you'll experience joy through living in biblical community. Let me close with what I found to be a remarkable uh, truth about something that we find very common and familiar this time of year. Most Christmas carols focus on the story of the nativity. But one well-known Christmas carol actually doesn't focus on the nativity though we all think that it does. In fact, ironically, the kids sang it this morning. It's Joy to the World. Joy to the World is a very unique song, but it was never intended to be a song. It was written as a poem, part of a book of poems, written in 1719, over 300 years ago. And it was written by the English hymn writer Isaac Watt. This poem was based on Psalm 98, and it, was, it wasn't supposed to be a Christmas song. It was just supposed to be a poem. But a century later, a Boston music teacher by the name of Lowell Mason discovered the poem, and he set it to music. And it's the song we have today. Joy to the World was released at Christmas time, and it quickly became a holiday favorite and went on to become the most published Christmas carol in America. But it was never about the nativity. 
You see, uh, this, this poem by Isaac Watt was about when Jesus would return, his second coming. It was about his return when he was going to come and to rule with power and justice and mercy. It wasn't about his first coming. It was about his second coming. That was, that was Isaac Watts' intent for that song, that poem. So over 200 years now, this Christmas carol has brought an emphasis to the birth of Jesus. And we sing it with great feeling and meaning about that. And now we realize that it also brings emphasis to his second coming. Jesus said this in John 14, verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. God has used this Christmas carol initially to bring joy from the birth of Jesus, who came to save us from our sins. It doesn't diminish that at all. God has used it in a powerful way this time of year. But now, from this point forward, we'll all be encouraged to know that this song will also be an anthem producing joy by reminding us that Jesus is coming again. Hallelujah. And when he comes, he's going to take us home to be with him in heaven for all eternity. And when we focus on both of these events, his birth and his return, in this song, we will truly experience joy to the world. And we'll have it in our hearts in a deep place. And it won't be contingent upon our circumstances. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you. First, for these kids that were on our stage today. And God, for their tender hearts and sweet spirits as they saying, go tell it on the mountain. Enjoy to the world. This is more than just all the accoutrements of this season. This is about a baby. And I'm so thankful that those kids know the significance of a baby born in a manger. And Lord, I pray that as they grow, they'll grow in their knowledge and understanding and relationship with you. Lord, I pray your blessing on them and on parents and their grandparents, uh, that you will speak mightily through this season as you gave the gift of Jesus to us, which really is great news that has brought great joy. God, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.